Responsibly, a few brew in, chance of animosity. A couple more brew and the crew getting wobbly. No matter this, the park place a podcast monopoly. Drink this podcast. Drink cool. this podcast. Uh, Paul and I are going to talk about Twin Peaks, so everybody shut up because we're in the middle of something. <laughs> yes. Um, so, the comment that led into this, and I was texting Matt a little bit about this the other day when I was watching it, uh, is that. I think they've done a really exceptional job in this episode um, of recapping everything they've thrown at you in the last like two, two and a half episodes. Yeah. While making it like have it make sense within the narrative because there's been a lot of info drop in the first yes. two, and, two and a half hours. So I was good. And as I was going to respond to you, I felt for the first time like, okay, I know who that is and I know who they're related to and how they like connect to everybody and like his weird fucking magic Tibetan bottle. dream magic. Yeah does a very good job of establishing who's who like <laughs> all right now i want you to say the guy's name and how he's related to, like it couldn't be more explain but, what's going on to everybody but also the way it's framed is so he has a list of suspects they're all out in the middle of the woods somewhere and he's had them like measure out fucking a, a specific distance so do you know what's 60 feet like maybe this is not what david lynch meant but do you know what is also 60 feet six inches no. The difference or the distance between the pitcher's mound and home plate. Oh, interesting. I think. I if that is the case, I would have to think David Lynch knows that cuz again, Americana is his whole shtick and I feel like baseball has shown up in some of his movies. Don't quote me on that, but um so I mean in and of itself the setup is pretty weird and uh what I also found really endearing is that clearly everyone in the local police station really likes Coop cuz like they're all shooting each other looks as they're doing the setup. And then yeah. he has them all sit down on folding chairs while he pulls out an ex- like a retractable uh, pointer. Uh, and they're all, they all lean forward. And it's clearly like, this guy's a weirdo, but we like him. So we're... Well, let's, let's start at the... Be- if we're going to recap the episode, let's start at the beginning. Because uh, I think this is like... This episode was super engaging from minute one. Yeah. Uh, and nothing gets said for a solid minute before well, jerry fucking well, fucking jerry shows up yeah while they're all sitting there eating dinner like nothing gets said uh, uh well you just um, hear them like cutting food so i i i what i would jump to for that is that uh there's definitely there's not a tremendous amount of plot progress in this episode like we don't learn a lot but we get a lot kind of connected yeah yeah exactly. um so one of the things that I, I really noticed, uh, so, because um, I, I do want to come back in a little bit and talk a little bit more about some of the, the individual beats, because I think that the sound and um, graphic design did a really, really good job this episode, too. Uh, yeah, it's very visually interesting episode. So It's very artfully early, done. Yeah, so early on, um, Jerry, so uh, Ben Horn, the guy who runs the, the lodge, sorry, I'm also going to go back a second. I'm going to change... Something I've been doing for the last couple of episodes. I'm going to try and pretend I haven't seen this show before. Okay. Because uh, I my job. Well, isn't that what I bring I, to this party? I mean, yes and no. I like I I know who did it for one thing. Yeah. Like I know all of the major beats, uh, and that's going to help me suss some stuff out. I think. But also, I I was thinking back in the last couple of episodes. Uh, I've spent a lot of time trying to suss out where this connects to stuff that happens later on, and I don't know that that's the right approach to take with this because I'm gonna I. I feel like I'm taking the risk of inadvertently spoiling something for you. Um, and also that I kind of want to, it's been a few years and I've forgotten enough. Like the, the dream sequence at the end, I definitely thought that was like episode six, really? not three. Yeah. I'd misremembered where that showed up. Oh, excuse me. So clearly it's been long enough Yeah. that uh, I can go into this at least a little bit cold. So I'm, I think I'm going to try and do that. But anyways, um, I, so for, with that, um, that caveat anything i'm saying is not oh did you pick up on this this yeah. is me going like yeah i genuinely i mean this might be a thing so uh the second victim the lady that didn't get murdered yeah 
uh, the one in the hospital whose name is escaping me. Right. Um, when so Ben's brother, weird fucking brother Jerry shows up, who's I guess been in Paris for the previous episodes. Yeah, and he he brings them. A, he brings his brother a sandwich, bread and brie and sandwich, butter. which sounds disgusting yeah sorry that sounds awful and also no human being eats a sandwich like that right just like take a giant bite out of the fucking middle and then but clearly it's the whole point of doing that is meant to show you're learning who he is right yeah as a person what's his pickle the horn it's horn right yeah the guy that runs the motel ben and jerry yeah right um but he's having an affair with the woman who's trying who's Peter's doing, wife yeah who's doing the books for yeah the mill and Peter and the mill owner are friends so he's fucking with because that's one of the plot things that advances is that we yeah. find out that the books well, at the mill are being cooked which but, was at least implied in the last episode because what's your nuts does say to him at some point uh you know maybe hope we can't speed this up so my dullard of a husband doesn't potentially find the books yeah so clearly pete's a weirdo but he's not as dumb as we are we're led to think he is because he's clearly figured that shit out right and we also learn about learn more about the relationship between leo and the two football players yeah what i was going to get to though um is that so jerry shows up he's bummed out that the deal with norwegians fell through yes so uh ben takes him to the the whorehouse the canadian whorehouse which is that supposed to imply that, like in 1990, Americans thought that Canada had legalized prostitution? I don't. I don't know. It seems yeah. weird that you would cross a border to commit a sex crime. <laughs> Maybe that's the only good whorehouse. I don't know. Uh, yeah, whatever. Uh, but yeah. So one of the things that I noticed was that what I meant about the second victim is the second victim had just quit working at the local perfume counter like a week before she got assaulted. Right. And they make a point. This actually comes up a couple times, but the the new girl at the brothel just quit the uh, perfume counter. Well, yeah, and it, like that she smelled of the perfume counter, and like that actually comes up again. Uh, yeah, they mentioned uh, the perfume counter a couple of times. Yeah, so I'm wondering if like there there's got to be at least some kind of implication that there's a connection with all of that, and also something that at least twigged weird with me. And may or may not have been intentional because I don't know. Like Lynch generally has pretty good actors and actresses in his shows. But uh, if it was intentional, the actress playing the new girl was deeply uncomfortable when she was being let off by Ben. Yeah, wouldn't you be? Absolutely. But also she just went to work at a brothel. I mean, that kind of comes with the territory. And it's clear that at least the madam likes him. Uh, I feel like that guy looked at me here let me like i thought something along exactly along these lines when i watched it and i'll try and remember exactly what it was it was something along the lines of if i thought that dude had paid to fuck me i would be very concerned because (laughs) i would be concerned what that guy thinks paying to fuck me means yeah i just i i i know that there is at least foreknowledge again i won't go there but uh the brothel will show up again Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, and I, I don't remember, I honestly don't remember the exact specifics, just that there's something to do with that. There's a reason that we actually went there and met some of the people involved. Yeah, I know what it is. Again. I did a little uh, reading while I was watching today and accidentally spoiled a couple things. So I like, uh, I have a vague idea of what's going to happen, but nothing specific. Okay. Uh, we're probably in the same boat there then, because I kind of vaguely remember what happens with that, but not the exact details. Like he goes back and someone's there that's wearing a mask yeah something like that to not spoil anything yeah um so those those two suck i i the (laughs) horns are are clearly bastards but even when he gets up to like what really struck me was how deafening the silence was as they're sitting there eating and you can just hear them like cutting and chewing and her brother well and shit and how different he is when he's with when he's interacting with his brother to the point where he looks at his family before departing and goes always a pleasure yeah. <laughs> fucks off whereas he was just sitting there deadly quiet and his wife just keeps going like oh my god yeah. uh, uh a lot of bad marriages in this episode too yeah 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 for sure uh so uh, it, it kind of like it it solidified the connection between all of those people uh tied 
him to the the uh tried horn to the married woman that's doing the books for the mill yeah uh and connected her to the like she's the sister-in-law right of yeah of the ex of the dead husband the widower or the widow well no so the, the guy who died was her brother yeah so she, the sister-in-law of, of the, the widow widow yes okay yeah Josie. Uh, and it like connected the two football players bobby and his buddy to right. leo so and then also the, the two different ways they connect, right? Because Bobby is having an affair with Leo's wife. Yep. Uh, and Leo doesn't know doesn't know that he knows he knows, or at least he thinks somebody's having and like yeah. sleeping with her. Yes. But he doesn't know who. <clears throat> um, so one of the uh, other like notes in terms of the the longer term connection with the brothel slash casino is that Coop comes back to his room and somebody slips a note under his door. Yes. The one eye or Jack of the one Jack eye. Jack with one eye. And I'm pretty sure that's meant to be Audrey because he smells the thing and smiles. Yeah. Uh, oh, and she's, yeah, yeah, okay. She's fucking with her dad's business and clearly, like, it's pretty. I, I suspect everyone knows where he went that night. Uh, although, again, weird way to deal with your family to have your brother, whom clearly everyone dislikes, show up, eat a sandwich weirdly, and then say bye and then just fuck off for the rest of the night to yeah, the local go, brothel. Go, go, to like, bang some, go to have sex with some sex workers. Um, so I, I think that that's probably meant to be uh, significant later on. Um, I'd also say it's interesting. So we find out what the Bobby and what's his nuts are doing. They're buying drugs off of Leo. Yeah. For reasons. Because um, money. I thought it was interesting that Bobby made a point to bring in a fucking switchblade, but then he still completely chickens out immediately. Yeah. Which, no shit, Leo's a psychopath. Yeah, I wouldn't fuck around. He shows up out of the dark and shines a flashlight in his face and pulls a fucking shotgun Shut on him. Um, although that said, there was clearly... So they, they think they see somebody off in the shadows. Yeah. Uh, which, I mean, at least on camera, there is somebody off in Who's the shadows. Who's either Mike or Bob, right? I, well, if it's, if it's one of the two, and I think it is, it's, it's gotta be... It's gotta be Mike. Yeah. The uh, one, Mike is the one our man. Yes, the one who was sneaking around the hospital last week and gives a monologue to uh, Coop in his dream. Right. Um, so. Uh, but we'll get there. Yeah, well, Mike is the only one that we really deal with in person. Okay. At least for like a while. So as a general rule of thumb, because uh, like, I don't think that's spoiling anything too much because like Bob was seen in the last episode. He's the dude that was crouching behind the couch yeah. when Laura's mom melted down. And then he's okay. in. Well, he clearly wasn't actually there, though. She was seeing an apparition of him. Right. And then he was in Cooper's Dream, Dream tonight, where he actually introduced, like, kind of introduces himself and, like, yells at Mike for giving away the game. Uh, but we'll get to that in a minute. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I, 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 that was my read on that as well. We don't really see the figure clear enough to tell whether he has two arms, but I think the implication is that's supposed to be Mike that Leo's dealing with. Okay. I could be wrong. Right. I, that's just, uh, that's a supposition. Um, and, uh, yeah, that whole scene then is, uh, you know, they, they tell Leo that the rest of the money is in a, a yeah, thing. Yeah, it's like, terrifying. Yeah, I'd be fucking scared as a punk 17-year-old or whatever dealing with this fucker. Like, yeah, I'd run too. So he threatens them, they run off, and the other uh, football dude says to Bobby, I'm done. Which I would yeah, be at yeah, that point so too. I'm, I'm out. Tapping out here, pal. This is uh, not worth it anymore. This guy might fucking kill us. Um, Especially so, when he finds out you're banging his wife. Exactly. Uh, which I don't know if the friend is supposed to know that, that or not. But even if not, yeah. like. Uh, so also, I'm going to skip ahead a scene, but just like, man, Bobby is such a piece of shit where like he goes and shows up to Shelly, the wife. Yeah. And she's like, I can't see you. Like, yeah, Leo's going to fucking kill us. Go away. And he just barges in and like manhandles her. Yeah. And then has this big tough guy spiel. If he ever touches you again, I'll fucking kill him. You're like, no, you won't. No, you won't. He'll you kill ran, you. Like, a, you ran away last night. The dude's a fucking psycho. Yeah. Uh, speaking of, the scene then between those two was uh, uh, Ed and a real fun scene with his wife, Nadine. <laughs> where he tramples over her curtain rods. And then, like, so or no her wonder. Or drape runners or whatever. Yeah, no wonder uh, the fucking sheriff said that he'd be dead if she like properly was aware because she's on an exercise machine and like melts out yeah. and then literally breaks the metal bar and <laughs> like, hits oh. him. Isn't it, isn't the implication that she hits him with it? No, 
Big, it's just, like, uh, why is he patched up then? Like, he was patched up from the previous episode. That wasn't Bobby punched him in the first episode. Oh, okay. Maybe I missed that part. When I yeah, no, the, there's no implication that she actually hit him. Just that, like, she flipped out and, and is apparently freakishly strong, right. as well as being fucking nuts. <laughs> uh, which we'll come back to that again in a little oh bit. Oh my god! And we we it only happens briefly, but we shouldn't skip over the fact that. Uh, uh, the motorcycle guy and Laura's friend, James and Donna. James and Donna have have a little makeout session in their parents in her parents. Yeah, well, and like for 1990 and a bunch of like 17 year olds, her parents are pretty permissive. There's like it's really clear that they both know they're gonna make out. It's like okay, well we're gonna go to bed now. Yeah. It was nice meeting you. Are you gonna come to church tomorrow? Okay, 9 a.m. sharp. Oh, see, I read that as him being like, don't don't fuck on my couch like i read that i feel like he stands there waiting hoping that he'll volunteer to leave i think so but when he doesn't i think that's a okay well if you do don't wake us up because then they do go and make out on the couch until like fucking 1 a.m yeah so i the implication i read of that was when he goes and doesn't like give the kid the boot as a like okay well if you guys are going to make out be aware that you got to be up to go to church tomorrow church yeah, that's what that's what I read out of it was like, I I got a bit of both. I thought I was a okay. Well, all right. If you're gonna do this, at least like you know, it's like one of two times she's in the in the episode. Um, same with uh, uh, Ed, the guy's uh, James's uncle, right? He yeah. He has, okay, so here's the other question I had: uh, Is he having an actual affair with the other woman at the diner? Yes. Or, okay, they are banging. Okay. Uh, so I, I think that that is most evident and also that that's clearly feeding back into what I was saying from, I think last week, um, where I think Nadine knows, but doesn't let herself know because that's clearly an open town secret given that he comes in and Norma like caresses him in public. And it's like, all right, well, this is the town diner. So if you're comfortable doing that there, then clearly like everyone's just not telling Nadine. Yeah. Well, but she's clearly like, that's what makes her weird and crazy. Uh, yes and no. We'll we'll get to that eventually, maybe. Oh, okay. I I always assume that's what broke her was that like. Uh, if I'm remembering correctly, no. Oh. All it's right. related, but it's not why she's like she is. Oh, okay. Uh, uh, so where are we going here? One of the other things which I don't think we addressed earlier was with Cooper's whole thing. So basically, he has him line up or put up a glass thing on a a set of uh spaced out logs and then he throws a rock at them as they read out the name and if it hits then they make a note of it so what's interesting about that and also loops back into him being a weirdo but also being kind of sherlock holmes is that the two times it hits are both people involved yeah uh but everybody was involved right like every one of them had a relation to laura well so what they're trying to figure out the reason that i also didn't actually pick up on this until they got to this is that like basically all of the major characters have a j in their name yeah which is what they're basing that off of so what he's trying to find is um she her last diary entry was saying she was nervous about meeting jay that night so uh clearly something hinky was going on with her psychologist yes who's the the one that lands but doesn't break the bottle and we know that leo was involved in at the very least getting someone to bleed heavily over his shirt most likely involved in murdering somebody and that rag, I was assuming, was connected to it as well. Yeah, probably. So uh, the the glass bottle shattered when it hit him. So the only two people we know were involved in something hinky that hasn't come up explicitly yet. Because we know that James's connection was that he was secretly sleep like dating her. Yes. But um, we don't know what the psychologist's connection is yet, aside from that given that he's like 50 and was fucking a 17-year-old. Or, you know, was carrying on something inappropriate with somebody 40 years his junior uh that there's something a little sinister with that and we know that leo was involved in some sort of grievous bodily harm so the only two that we we already knew were involved with something nefarious to do with the greater plot are the only two that it lands on which i thought was interesting yeah no and i i so is there anything else that between now and the dream that's important that we need to mention i'm just skimming through my notes because I have some notes, just to, uh, I have other things on. Because uh, I want to talk, mo- I want to talk more about what I'm expected to believe. Okay, I don't think there's anything else super important. Uh, I will oh, get to the that. Palmers have a fucking meltdown. Mel- I believe my note were the Palmers are doing great, y'all. 
uh some i was reading in the wikipedia article and like one of the the some some writer had written that like uh it exudes an air of domestic terror or something like that the low angles and the color scheme and whatnot well and um, so in terms of that the scene basically is that i guess we're assuming anyone who's listening to this has either watched the show or is okay following vicariously yeah. with our ramblings uh if you haven't watched it, it's a great show. We're three episodes deep. If you're still listening to this and you haven't seen Twin Peaks, go and fucking watch Twin Peaks. Um, but so the scene in question is uh, Laura's dad is in hysterics and comes downstairs and puts on this really like upbeat, like 60s jazz. Yeah. Pennsylvania 65000. Yeah. Uh, and then picks up that portrait that we have in the opening credits and starts whirling around with it. And when her mom comes down and says, what the fuck? Yeah, it's, it's, he starts like screaming at her. We have to dance. Yeah. And then she eventually like rests the portrait out of his hands and it shatters. It and and he, his hands get all cut up and he starts like caressing her face and rubbing blood all right. over it. Well, she, she stands in the background screaming, what is going on in this house? Yeah. So yeah. Domestic terror. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, so, and after that is the famous, like, what do they call it? The black lodge. Yeah. Well, at the red room is what they, that bit of it was. It, that's getting too far into the plot, but okay. it we'll call it the red room for now okay. because that if we start getting getting into the black lodge, then I might have to start spoiling some shit that's okay. relevant for next season. So well, let's just call it the red room the for red now. Room. Um, uh, which I'm really curious. Um, I, there's some other stuff I want to talk about in terms of aesthetics and sound design, but I'm that's the scene that I think most people probably in like the pop cultural zeitgeist went. Well, that's fucking weird. Yeah, because that's been parodied in everything. And I know. Mm-hmm. That was, I think, part of what initially turned you off of this show. So what did the actual, how did that actual scene hit you? Okay, so this is what I wanted to talk about based on what I saw today. Um, And it's so, so far I've been able to engage with the weirdness because it it feels like small town weirdness to me. Like these people are just eccentric. Right. Uh, But I feel I'm being expected to take some leaps of understanding that like, some kind of magical realism exists in this universe. I would say that that's a fair assessment. There's certainly something beyond the, there's something beyond the normal, there's something supernatural going on. Am am I using that term? Magical realism? Is that what this is? No. Because yes and no. So it it reminds me of the, the only other thing I know of that is expressly magical realism is uh, Kinsella's uh, Shoeless Joe which is the basis for the film Field of Dreams. Okay. Um, so not really. Field of Dreams is more more like explicitly magical. So this actually requires a little bit of a digression because magical realism, as it is generally defined, was primarily uh, a Latin American thing that came out of the 60s and 70s. Um, like the most famous novel probably of that genre is 100 Years of Solitude by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Okay. Um, but one of the things that's really important is that magical realism is not necessarily an accurate translation of the, the term used in Spanish, which is lo real marvelloso, okay. which is like a marvelous real. So like one of the things that one of the, so like Gabriel Garcia Marquez and a lot of the authors like him, but him specifically, he grew up in a small town in, ah, uh, fuck, what's that? Uh, one of the countries in Northern, I think Venezuela, I'm pretty sure. Okay. It was, Venezuelan or one of those. Uh, it's been a little while since I did any biographical reading into that, but he was from like a coastal town along the, the north bit or, you know, in from the coast in uh, northern South America. Um, so there's like uh, a lot of like um, Latin American Catholic folk stuff in that. So like a woman walks up to heaven one day in that, but it could also be read as her having passed away or like one of the most magical things that happens in that particular novel is because it's set uh, during the mid to early mid 19th century, to early 20th century. And again, like basically where Garcia Marquez grew up. So they get an ice box and that's like, it's a banana town that they, they live in. And so things like that are presented as magical. So it's not necessarily that it's magic within an everyday setting. Right. It's more that things are interpreted magically okay i get what you mean um so, so this, this this is this kind of because up to like as of right now we don't know that anything that happened in cooper's dream is anything more than a dream because we already he has said explicitly in this episode that he has learned deductive reasoning from weird dreams before 
Right. Yeah. No, he he brings that up and he performs this ritual, like what's clearly a ritual, right? So that that could be interpreted as magical realism, I would say, because, again, nothing explicitly magic happens. But I'm supposed to believe that it's accurate, right? Like in the context of the universe, the rock hitting the bottle does mean something. But it could also be I mean, he's showing to aim pretty wildly. If you wanted to do a more grounded reading of everything up to the last scene, it's entirely possible that you could read that, given that, again, we've we've been given explicit evidence that he's got, like, preternatural deductive abilities, that he's in, there's some process in his brain that's working through the, the case to date, and he's intentionally only hitting it on the ones that have, cl- like, twigged something in his head, even if he's not conscious of doing so. Right, so it's, it's more about reading him than it is, like... Yes. Okay. And I, I think that that's part of why we have a couple of more instances of Cooper being both uh, very, very good at his job, but in this episode in particular, more so that he's just intensely likable. Yeah. Um, good coffee. And that he's, and that he's really weird. Yes. So uh, I think that that's what the the scene with Alfred was about. Okay. Where he, he's just a profound dickhead, but it's pretty clear that everybody... So the fact that he knew that they were there before Lucy could say anything uh, is, I think, just supposed to be another one of those, oh, yeah, he's like really good at... He's yeah. very smart, and he's good at deductive reasoning. The fact that she's reading a book about Tibet means that he's clearly got her interested about that. Uh, he and the sheriff that has share... nothing to do with anything, right? Nope. That's just, he was talking about Tibet and she went, oh, that sounds interesting. Okay. Um, I also, this is, I was too young. I was like a year old when this came out, so I can't speak to it. But I'm wondering if the like Tibet was less well-known in North American pop culture Probably. in 1990. Because like to me, that's a, yeah, everybody knows about Tibet. The Dalai Lama was a fucking celebrity in the 90s, like the late 90s. Yeah, but he's also a religious dictator. Yeah, well, and a lot of that was uh, like Richard Gere and company that were the Tibetan Buddhist co- yeah. uh, cohort. I do think that was a little later into the 90s, but... It was, for sure. Um, so that and the look that the sheriff and Coop share before they go to talk to Albert, I think are meant to, again, reinforce that, like, A, Cooper's good at what he does, but also B, everyone there really likes him, and they've immediately formed like yeah. a, a pretty good camaraderie. And um, Albert's the opposite of that. He's the foil, right? He's... Well, Al- Al- Albert... And more specifically, the two goons he's got with him are picture perfect men in black G-men. Yeah. They got sunglasses on. They got black suits, black ties and a white shirt. They don't say anything. And Albert's a raging dickhead. Yeah. But he's that's the that's the that's what I mean by foil. Right. Like, yes. they're both exceedingly good at their jobs, but completely opposite per like in personality. Right. Whereas well, Coop I is think eminently th- likable and there's nothing likable about Albert. Albert. And I think that the other bit of that is also meant to emphasize um, that somebody, like when they say, you know, I wouldn't expect any better than the best to be working with you being Cooper. I think all of that exchange is also meant to emphasize that almost nobody else could work with Albert. Because Cooper is like, he, he warns the uh, Sheriff Harry Truman. He says, just one of my favorite, like, just low-key right. gags in that. <laughs> uh, he warns the Sheriff, like, uh, you know, Albert's not the most personable guy. And yeah. then he walks in and it's just like, this two-bit piece of shit, amateur hour yeah. bullshit. So uh, the sheriff pulls him over. You got a minute? And he says, you know, I got I, I to gotta trust that you're as good as you say you are because anyone else that comes there is that Coop says here, because anyone else that came in here and insulted my police station like you just did would be picking up your teeth two, two, blocks, two blocks down on Queer Street. And the best part of this, which I only noticed on the rewatch, is Cooper's got a happy little grin oh, on his face. Oh, he smiles through the, whole, through the whole thing and gives him a thumbs up. At and the then end. he gives him a big <laughs> thumbs up. At the end. Yeah, that made me laugh. So uh, I think that that's just supposed to be, again, like a, a real, I think Coop's good at his job, but okay. also he's like, he's really likable. And I think that that's kind of meant to be part of it, which is that they all clearly think he's a weirdo. So uh, like, Here's here's the other question I have about that scene. The donuts that are laid oh. out on the table. Yeah. Is it like this is what Did I you don't not get. notice a recurring donut thing? No. There was that scene at the beginning of last episode where Cooper shows up, talks at the sheriff for like a solid minute and a half while he's trying to eat a too big bite of a donut. Yeah. And they're like they're, they're always eating donuts, okay. clearly. I think that I suspect that's probably just uh, late 80s gag about cops being into donuts okay because so that's what i wanted to know like they do, it doesn't it clearly has nothing to do with what he's doing or you, you know nothing that you need to know right as a as the audience is it supposed to be funny like am i supposed to see that and be like 
huh, that's weird that they've got donuts out. Like, I wonder what part of this ritual they fell into and why I don't get to see it. Or like, I would, I'd have to go back and watch more carefully up to this point. But I think almost every scene that has involved the entirety of the local police department has involved coffee and donuts okay. in some capacity. Okay. I could be wrong, but at least most of them have at some point. So I think that's just like an establishing shot. See, and maybe, it's actually a good. Sorry, maybe uh, that's you were, you're like the dream sequence, which we'll talk about next, because this like leads into that, right? And like what I've what's always turned me off about Twin Peaks, and maybe like I've never articulated it well, is like I don't know if this is supposed to be funny or serious. Like, is this a joke or? It's all of it, all of the above. Okay. Um, and actually, I'm going to cut you off because I think that leads just a little bit better into one of the points that I wanted to make okay. in terms of just like background and ambient set design. So um, one of the things that has been really pronounced is that the the uh, Great North Lodge, the place like the, the Ben Horn owns, yeah, is profoundly um, covered in very like coastal Salish uh, Pacific Northwest imagery. So they've got... The kind of imagery you'd see on totem poles on the walls. Yeah, they, they even have it like in their dining room <clears throat> behind yep. him, right? And the kid is wearing the the a headdress. Was wearing, is wearing a headdress. A... So uh, it's and like the, going the... to the Banff, Banff Park or the Jasper yeah. Park Lodge. Uh, no, I would even say more. It's like something I would see out, out on like in Vancouver or Victoria. Um, yeah. That kind of iconography is like very coastal. Okay. And it's explicit. They're not on the coast. They're like in the mountains. Yeah. And so I, what I find really interesting is that I think this is used to really good effect to represent multiple different kinds of small town Americana, because when they need to, they can go lean in hard on the Pacific yeah. Northwest thing. Cause clearly the lodge is out of the town proper. It's on a waterfall. It's by a logging thing. Yeah. That, that's, that's very Pacific. That's like, you know, rural Oregon, rural Washington state, but twin peaks itself feels very Midwestern. And I noticed this most dramatically aside from, you know, the, the rural route nine diner vibe and all of that. Uh, when, Ed shows up after, like, and talks to Norma after having the run-in with Nadine because the background music to that is in profoundly Midwest. Yeah, like yeah, that is right. not that is not coastal in the slightest. And one of the things I really noticed in this episode is that the sound design really goes along with that as well. So when they need oh, to yeah. be Twin Twin Peaks itself also feels like and maybe I'm picking up on this just because I'm I'm from the Pacific. Like I grew up on Victoria, in Victoria yeah. and I spent a lot of time around that part of the world, but. Uh, like when they're out in the forest, it feels very Pacific Northwest. The town shots don't. It feels like the interior in BC. Yeah, that's. I was gonna say it reminds me very much of like the Okanagan Valley. It's dusty and like it's not very lush. Uh, uh, like it feels like a BC. I was gonna say it feels like a town in the interior. So I think that's just a really interesting choice because it it can the the lodge stuff and the uh, the out in the woods stuff is I think spookier. Then you for like the the setting, then you could get away with if you were doing like a, a town in like in the interior of BC or yeah. like more east in Washington State, because there's less of that like there's not the big heavy trees and the clouds. Yeah. Uh, so I there I just I think that that's one of those things where I'm picking up certainly more since I'm watching all of these episodes twice and taking notes the second time through. Um, they do a really, really good job with that sort of just like low key background stuff, which unless you're looking for it, you might not necessarily notice. Well, like, so I, I noticed the, the scene in the diner, uh, where, I, and it's like, I'm getting better at recognizing who people are, but I don't know, always know their names. James. And what's the girl he's in love with now? Uh, Donna. Donna. So Donna and her parents are in the diner. Yeah. And Audrey and... Horn comes in and sits down. Yeah. Uh, and she puts something on the jukebox. So we she puts on that same song again. Yeah, we talked about this last time, right? The like music, the music is in universe, right? And I didn't know if like if that was you were referencing that point that happened in this episode, or if it happened no, I'd, twice. For <clears throat> I'd forgotten all about that because it it clearly is very timed to like when she picks up the coffee cup, when she moves mm -hmm. it. There's like there's a lot of uh, choreography at play in that scene. There is probably a read you could make that Twin Peaks, at least in the first couple of episodes, is set through Audrey's perspective just because of that. Because hmm. clearly, I mean, I don't, I don't think it's a serious argument to be made, but there is. I mean, if you wanted to do like a, a silly interpretive thing, I think you could make that because that's very clearly her theme song, even though we hear it a lot. Yeah. Uh, she, put, she like, and she, she makes it that. Like she chooses yeah. that. And uh, even says, "Isn't isn't this so dreamy?" And then just stands there swaying. <laughs> Which I, I think part of that is just to emphasize that uh, Audrey's real fucking weird and that she comes from a okay. not happy household. Like, However, 
it does really like the sh- the entire and this episode is a really good indication of it because the whole scene with Coop Albert and uh, Truman is f- I think that's fun fucking hilarious. Like, oh yeah, it's great. Um, that well, the big thumbs up at the end of that <laughs> is precisely why. <laughs> Who and, does that? And the stuff with Ed and is it Nancy the wife? Nadine. Nadine. Uh, Ed Nadine really fucking tweaks me out. Like it's. But again, I kind of read it as a little bit darker, right? Because I feel like she's broken. Well, and I mean, so clearly there's something I don't know yet. I have a note about that. When he comes home after pissing her off and she's figured out that the grease he was tracking in makes the cotton balls on her fucking drapes go silently. Yeah. And she screams at him as he comes back and he's in. Like, ah. And he, well, he hears her start running and he goes, oh my God. Yeah. Well, like, and I feel oh. like it's even shot to make me feel scared, right? Like it there's an like, implication of yeah, like looks mm-hmm. dead on, and she charges him, and I'm like, oh, she's gonna fucking beat him up. Uh, so one of the other, the other thing I wanted to just get on or point out about that scene with Audrey and Donna in the diner, uh, it's at least pretty heavily implied, um, based on what Donna asks about Laura, that uh, Audrey knew what Laura was up to. Because she says, I didn't hate Laura, but I didn't like a lot of the things that she did. Yeah. And then she kind of stirs her coffee cup for a bit, does a little "Uh teen girly moment about Cooper, and then asks uh, Donna, uh, did Laura ever say anything about my dad? That's what I'm like. I know there was something that like that she said that made me go like, oh. And that's that's well, and that her dad like sang to Laura when she was younger or something. It's like, oh, oh, you know, some of what was going on. Well, it's, which is why I feel the One-Eyed Jack is going to come back into play. Like, it just, it does feel very, watching this makes Mulholland Drive make a lot more sense to me. Uh, if that, like, I don't know if you've ever seen it. Not in, like, a very long time. Yeah, it's time, been but... a long time, but it evokes a lot of the same feelings in me that Mulholland Drive does. Like, I feel like they're touching on similar themes. I think if, again, I haven't watched a tremendous amount of Lynch outside of Twin Peaks, but Everything I understand about him is that, well, uh, if you like his stuff, I think it can all be read as very good. Yeah. But he's definitely dealing with a lot of the same sort of themes in all of his projects. He's clearly got, like, a thing that's got his... A, a, there's a particular bee in his bonnet, and that's kind of what yeah. he's sort of circling around. Um, while we're on that note, though, something uh, I was doing a bit of background reading on today... Most of these actors and actresses are long-term Lynch collaborators. Yeah. Even Big Big Ed. Big Ed uh, was worked with him on like three other movies. Yeah, I recognize him from other things. Well, and also he retired in like 99, but was agreed to come back and do the return. Huh. So I think that really, I mean, I aside from the fact that I've never read anything but positive things about people who've worked with Lynch. Yeah, even in movies. Well, even in movies where like he's had them do pretty intense scenes, it's not like with Hitchcock, who was just like a fucking monster and yeah. tormented his cast. Like people are willing to do that kind of shit. I think for Lynch because he's a good dude. Yeah. Well, he's the anti-Allen. Yeah. Allen, Albert, Woody Allen. Oh, Woody Allen. I see. He's the yeah. anti-Woody Allen. I and well, I mean, I've said this before. He's not active on social media very much, but one thing I've always found tremendously endearing because I follow him on Twitter. Every single tweet starts with "Hello, Twitter friends." <laughs> That's adorable. It's like he said, and I've read some interviews with him where he's clearly a weird old dude, but like, well, he seems he, really nice. Didn't he say that primary colors were all bullshit? Something and like that. And the interviewer think... asked him to elaborate, and he just went, "No." <laughs> I know there have been a couple of times where people have asked him to explain the plot of Twin Peaks or his various movies, and he's like, "No." You read into it what you want. Yeah. It does make uh, me want to rewatch some of his movies now. Like, I want to see Eraserhead. I want to see it when it was yeah. really weird. I mean, we could do that when we're done with this. I guess so. Uh, I, but I, do we... I, I like David Lynch. One last thing I want to say before we switch on. Uh, actually, two things, because I think I might need to hit pause for two seconds to run to the bathroom. Uh, but one thing that's worth really noting is that Lynch himself is a really big music guy. Oh, yeah. It's very clear that the music, like all of the sounds that you hear are important. They're there yeah. on purpose. Well, so one of the things that became a really important thing in the return is that uh, every episode ends with a, a song being performed by some, like a band. Yeah. And like Lynch went out and scouted all of them. And some of them are like big. I mean, he got, he got Nine Inch Nails to perform. Neat. Um, but also like the, the very first one was this really trippy. Uh, I don't know if you like the music or not, but it, it might even be worth looking up the music video because it is just the scene from the end of that first episode. Um, but it's called Shadows by a band called Chromatics. And it's, again, a lot of that, like, weird, like, kind of sway. Uh, 
I guess you call it like Dream Pop, but like weird. It's called what? Uh, Shadows by the Chromatics, I believe. Well, I don't think we're necessarily into explicitly magical realism territory yet. I'm not sure if we'll get there because I don't remember exactly. But mm-hmm. a, a lot of the things that I really enjoy about his shtick definitely crosses over to what I enjoy. Because like I've read a ton of magical realism. That was my jam in my 20s. Right. I've read like everything I could get my hands on in English. Uh, so like it's a genre I'm pretty familiar with. And that's part of why I'm really into... Uh, a lot of like related spinoff stuff like modernist and postmodernist novels and uh, you know surrealist shit. The dream sequence happens, and the 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 man from the man uh, from another place. The man from another place talks to Cooper in the red room. Yes, with a woman he claims is not Laura Palmer, but looks very much like Laura Palmer. Well, it's played by the same actress. Yeah, but he says she's not Laura Palmer. She's my cousin. Uh, and it takes a while to unfold like it's a long scene yeah, that's like the last 10 minutes of the episode yeah well the, no doesn't the episode close on the on the palmers freaking out no it so closed. uh it's uh the palmers freaking out and then coop goes to bed and he has his dream right and he then he wakes up and he calls sheriff truman and he says Meet me here at the hotel dining room at seven o'clock sharp. I know who killed Laura Palmer. Mm-hmm. Yes, it can wait. Yeah, it can wait till morning. And then it cuts to him just snapping his fingers. And then the credits are a scene of the man from another place dancing. So the weird jazz. So no, that is the end of the episode. Okay. Uh, so he says a bunch of nonsensical things to Cooper. Or do they, do those have, like, are they meant to be clues or are they? Genuinely don't remember. Um, I think that. I think that the implication is supposed to, again, it's depending on how you want to read the scene. Do you want to read this scene as well? Because in the dream, he also talks to Mike, doesn't he? Like, no, Mike. Well, yeah, Cooper does. Yes. Cooper. Mike. Well, Mike monologues at Cooper and then Bob freaks out and yells at Mike and then says, I'm going to kill again. Yeah. So, so the implication being that Mike and Bob are somehow connected or have been working together. Yes. Well, because Mike says we live together in, what you would call, I believe, a convenience store above it. And so, like, if we're reading the dream as being literal, which, again, I I do know the answer to that, but I'm, like, working just from what we know within the context of the show so far, Cooper has been established multiple times to be really good at deductive reasoning and to have things come to him in his dreams. Right. So a way to read this is it's David Lynch being David Lynch, and he's put in 10 minutes of weird shit for the sake of it being a spur for Cooper. The other interpretation of that, because like he knows there's a guy with one arm. We never yes. got a clear look at the guy. I don't think we even saw his face. No, like, and that's the thing. That's it's two different. Like the dream happens in two different portions, and one of them is the where Mike monologues at him, and he delivers quite a bit of information. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah. Like it's a, it's an information dump for sure. If, if again we're taking it literally, and then it's the guy dancing in the corner or sorry no that happens while the man from the, the other credits place are playing. is dancing no he's dancing in the corner before oh, yeah, yeah. Goes, let's rock and yeah then, but then they, then they all sit down and talk for a while and yeah. then he gets up and dances again right but somewhere in there he also has a con- cooper has a conversation with mike yeah i forget what the actual direct order of that yeah, is now i, I should have been paying closer attention i watched it today and i can't remember i w- finished watching that 10 minutes before we hit record and i don't entirely remember the order of this but uh, i will admit i was paying slightly less close attention on that because i wasn't bothering to take notes for the dream sequence because yeah. like you're not you're not supposed to know what's going on i guess so um, um it's just, I think- it what i'm what my ultimate like question on the whole thing was is like what how much am i expected to believe and like clearly i'm going to be expected to buy into the idea that there's fantastical shit happening in this universe. I think that given what's been presented to date, um, because I'm I'm also really trying to watch this only given the information that we've been provided. Yeah. And I think if we're we're watching this only with the information that's been provided, um, one way to read this is that Cooper has real fucked up dreams and that this is his way of processing all of the information that he's been given to date. Right. Uh, And one way of interpreting it is that all of this is letter perfect accuracy um in which case some laura palmer clone uh walks over kisses uh cooper and then whispers in his ear for like 30 seconds oh yeah that took so long and i think well the man from another place dances weirdly in the background uh and if i were since that was i think pretty near the end of the dream sequence if i were to read that that'd be 
either Coop's being told what happened or what he thinks is being told what happened. Because, yeah. I mean, spoilers, he doesn't solve the case first thing next episode. Yeah. We're only halfway through the season, like not even. We're three um, episodes in. Yeah, of eight. So, like, it's not going to get sorted out uh, the next beginning of the next episode. But um, I guess another way to read that is that when Cooper said that he learned some sort of vaguely supernatural method of deduction, that that may also just be that, like, he has a connection to the supernatural. Right. So I could read it either way. I think you could read it anyway at this point, based on the amount of information we've been given. Okay. On the one front, we know that Cooper's weird, and then he, he gets information from dreams, and then he's really good at deduction. Because, like, um, what I get from a lot of this is, like, these people are strange, but they're not crazy, right? Like... With one or two exceptions. Yeah, I mean, certainly. But, I mean, they're they're just bizarre. They're not, like... It's a town full of weirdos. Yeah, exactly. So I think you could assume the same thing about Coop is that he's a weird guy, but that doesn't mean he doesn't have a connection to the supernatural, right? Yeah, which I think is... It doesn't mean it's a byproduct of his weirdness. Like, both those things can be true. Uh, I would say, uh, were I just interpreting this based on what I've seen in the three-some hours that we've gotten to so far, that'd be the way I'd read it, is that Coop has some kind of something, something beyond preternatural, Coop is also a weird, likable guy. Yeah. These two things, not necessarily directly connected. Right. Um, and that perhaps you could make that the interpretation that, like, I mean, Kyle McLaughlin was like 30 when he was filming this. So, you know, like, there is at least, I, I think, an in-universe read of that also that maybe some of this developed along the routes that it did because he's a cop. Mm-hmm. Right? So if he's got weird supernatural abilities that they, they developed the way they did, in terms of deductive reasoning, because that's what he does with his day. Yeah. Clearly he's obsessive about his work. And he would have been obsessive about his work either, like regardless. Exactly. So, you know, if he was a a barista, maybe he would have just gotten supernatural methods of making really good coffee. Yeah. But he happened to become an FBI agent. Exactly. Which actually is funny. I didn't mean that because of his coffee obsession. That was just what first popped to mind, but (laughs) maybe that's part of it too, is that I I would also say as someone who's like, spend a decent amount of time in little diners in like mid BC highway towns uh, and has worked as a coffee maker for a couple of years of more than once for multiple years. Um, I find it highly dubious that any of the coffee he's being served would actually be any good. Cause like usually diner coffee has been sitting on the, the, on the heater pot, on the heater for a while. It might be really good if it was freshly brewed, but I have never had um, like coffee that sat on the heating unit for more than about half an hour, that was anything I would call exceptional. It's like I, Maybe I like. He's crap- just got low standards for coffee. I like crappy diner coffee, so don't get me wrong. But like, I don't know. I, I was thinking about that when I was watching this. Like, is it though? <laughs> um, you got any final thoughts on this episode? Uh this is where things start to get a little weird, and it, I am definitely where things get weird. I'm having fun. I think I'm having more fun than I would be otherwise because you're not not having fun. Yeah. yeah, no, no. So, like, again, there's a lot that I'm expected to believe, I feel. And I, like, sometimes I just want an answer of, like, is this... Like I say, there's some of this that I find to be very funny. And some of it to, I find to be very disturbing. And those... The things that are either don't... Aren't that different, if that makes any sense. Like, mm-hmm. uh, the, the interaction with Coop and Albert and Truman is really funny. I think... That but, is genuinely one of the funniest scenes I've seen on TV in a while. But And the interaction <laughs> between Ed and his wife, Nadine, is fucking terrifying. But they're well, both kind of the same thing, right? It's it's framed comedically with the stuff between Ed and Nadine, even though clearly she is, like, tremendously strong. Yeah. And despite being, like, a foot shorter than Ed, could clearly kill him if she wanted to. Mm-hmm. Again, I thought that was really best. I think you're right, absolutely, in terms of the, the kind of mixed tone, because that's really well typified. With that, when she comes running and he goes, oh, my God. Yeah. And it's like, clearly, oh, fuck, what's going to happen now? No, super well. Like, and it is, if nothing else, very artfully done, right? Like, I get, it's it's fun to look at. Like, there's always, yeah. it, it, it encur- it's very Hitchcockian in the sense that it encourages you to look at everything. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm glad that I've been making the time to watch it twice um, between recordings. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, that also helps that I have literally no other commitments other than bathing and dressing myself and trying to eat. Uh, so that gives me a little bit more free time to sit down and watch this, but yeah, 
I'm certainly finding that the second rewatch while I'm taking notes, even if that means on some level I'm paying a little less attention, is also helping to make me pay more attention. Yeah. Because I'm looking for stuff to write down and I'm picking up on a lot more like the sound cues. I'd never noticed that before, but there is like that really distinct difference difference between the more rural stuff and in town is yeah. like, oh, that's really striking. Those feel huh. like two different places, but I would have never noticed that if I wasn't looking for it. Yeah. I'll, now I'm going to look for it when, when I watch it again next. Yeah. Uh, so no, I, I'm, I'm having fun. Um, Sweet. I'm, yeah, me too, man. I'm, Let's keep doing this. I'm very, I'm, I'm, Honestly, quite pleased to hear you talk about maybe wanting to go back and watch other David Lynch, just because it means I think you're probably going to, if nothing else, make it through the arc of this show I want you to make it through. Oh, yeah. I'm most likely. I, I'll, at this point, I'll tough it out. I'm now three and a half hours in. That's pot committed as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, and no, I like it, 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 it did make me want to revisit Mulholland Drive. Uh, if nothing else, Mulholland Drive was the one where, oh, this feels a lot like, there's a lot of I, things that are rem- in this that are <coughs> reminiscent of that. Maybe Blue Velvet. I think um, there's probably something to be said for those having made after Twin Peaks. Or, well, Blue Velvet might have been before, but yeah. Mulholland Drive was like 98, wasn't it? Yeah, it was in the 90s. Uh, but also, I think that, like, I suspect that a part of why you and others may have felt that way is because this is a, a, it, it eases into the Lynchian weirdness. Yeah. Like, we're, we're the better part of three episodes into this before we start to get, like, into... Super cryptic dance sequence yeah like all of that like you're already you're if you're if you've made it this far you're invested in the world you're invested in the characters enough yeah. you're gonna go all right i can live with this yeah as if opposed the to the show one episode being composed entirely of static or yeah i i suspect you're not going to enjoy the return i will we'll talk about this later on but my viewing of that is that the return is something else entirely it's it's using the universe and using a lot of the same characters but it is not the same show okay uh, I mean, if for no other reason than like 80% of the return doesn't take place in Twin Peaks. Oh. One of the major, like a good half of the show takes place in Las Vegas. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Um. All right. Well, this has been Drink This Pod Watches Twin Peaks. Let's do this Episode three. Woot, 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 woot. Yeah. Uh, contact us on the internet at drinkthispod, drinkthispod at gmail.com or drinkthispod.com uh find me at slingsbot wherever i am ditto for me at igor zarubo and uh we will uh until next time i've been matt i've been paul and if you if you end up watching any of this or you decide you want to watch along send us a note yeah tweet at us do something yeah Yeah. uh but until next time we'll drink with you again soon all right this has been a production of screaming dachshund studios Big ol' dicks.